On this episode of the Tough Juice Podcast, I had special guests, the longtime political strategist and political icon who you can hear on Politics War Room. His name is James Carville. Uh, he talked about many things, about why he's excited about young people getting on the front line and being engaged and driving the needle on change. We also talk about the debate. Uh, what did you feel about Ice Cube getting involved with his platinum plan for Black America? All these things. You do not want to miss this episode. Subscribe to the Tough Juice podcast on the Apple podcast, Spotify, my YouTube page, and wherever you get your podcasts. Vote, vote, vote. So, James, uh, first and foremost, it's a pleasure and honor to have you on the show. I was, I, I have so many questions and so many places I want to go with you uh, while we're conversating. But, you know, just coming off the debate last night, you know, you see Vice President Biden, you see President Trump. What are your initial thoughts and your biggest takeaways from the debate? Well, I, I, I guess my, my biggest takeaway is and you used to have people saying, oh, Biden shouldn't debate. You know, he's not a good debater. He's going to he's going to freeze. He's going to have cognition. Trump is going to lie. And I said, no, no, Biden, let Biden debate. He'll be fine. And I think what we saw last night was a was a, a really, I thought, a strong performance by Biden. I thought Trump came up like the first 40 minutes trying to be something other than Trump, and then the Trump took over. Uh, I, I actually thought that uh, Biden did really well. I thought he was really effective when he talked about wanting to be a president for all America. Uh, I thought that Trump particularly hurt himself with his callous attitude toward the family separation. I think that just the idea of, like, being away from your child. I remember one time, John, I was at a hotel and with my daughter, so I don't know, four years old, and she got into the elevator <clears throat> and I got distracted and the elevator door closed. And uh, I, I, could, I couldn't find her. So I keep walking up to each floor looking at the elevator. And I was utterly terrified. And it was out of, you know, like a Ritz Carlton or something like that. So I mean, every human being's had an experience with losing their child. You're in the Walmart, you can't find your kid. So I think that that was a particularly hurtful moment, uh, moment for him. Uh, I thought the close where, uh, the, the, by the way, the, the young woman journalist, she was terrific. She really did an outstanding job. And at the end of it, she said, well, what would you say to people that didn't vote for you after the election? And of course, Trump talked about himself and Biden talked about America. So I, I was quite pleased. I really, I really was. I, what did you think? I'm kind of interested in what you thought. You know what? I, I felt like it was this, you know, the consistent sound bites and, you know, uh, you know, promises clearly from Biden's side that, you know, some of the things that he want to do, and all the things that Trump did, you know, possibly wrong that he would do differently. Uh, I think that he elaborated on that extremely well. But from Trump's side, I felt like it's the same thing it's like well you can't blame me you got to blame the previous administration but you still had you know four years to kind of correct or move the needle on some of the real change you know um that he's been you know echoing for quite some time when you talk about obamacare and he's saying that it's a huge problem with it and his you know his uh health care plan is coming two weeks you know, that, that's been happening since 2016. So that was one of the things that was extremely glaring to me. But 
like how like how many voters or how much of an impact is these these debates uh going down into pretty much the fourth quarter in the last 12 13 days like do they really persuade voters to you know say yes or go with the other right so so that that that's a good question and and i think the science is kind of dicey on that i i do know i I know a lot of people that do focus groups and prior to the debates time you got a lot of people that were going to vote for biden but were worried that he's too old worried that he didn't have the stamina you know look they didn't want to vote for trump but they were apprehensive about voting for for biden i think what these debates accomplished was this you saw a very cognitive a very sharp uh human being up there so i I mean, if it changed minds, I suspect it might have changed a few. But it, what it did is it gave people reassurance and, and it shored up his support. It, people go, yeah, okay, he can do this. That's fine. Because when you run it, when an incumbent is running, Carole, the first thing the voter says, do I want this guy back or not, or this person back? Yeah, clearly, in Trump's instance, the answer was, we don't. So then but, but, when that process goes through, you say, okay. What about who's running against it? So once the person running against them reassures them that they can do the job, then that solidifies the support. If you're running against an incumbent and people kind of want that person back, then you got to you got to take him down. They they didn't have to take Trump down that much because people didn't want him back from the start. That's something we have to remember, and we also have to remember that it wasn't. COVID did Trump in. He was going to lose in January. Right? He, yeah. he, was, he, was, he was done from the night he was elected. That's deep. So, at, like, how, how many years of service, you know, around uh, all this stuff have you had over, over the years? Well, it, depends. <laughs> 30 years? it depends where you, where you start counting. I'd say the first race I was really involved in was 1971 in a DA's race in Baton Rouge. And then I was in, I was in law school then. Then I was really involved in a race for public service commission in Louisiana and in a congressional race in Louisiana, then a mayor's race in Louisiana. Then professionally, I started in 1982 where I ran the campaign for a guy named Lloyd Doggett in Texas and got the crap beat out of me. Uh, then in, that is, I'm sorry, 82, which was in Virginia. I lost that race close, but it was a Senate race in Virginia. And I got another job in 84 in Texas and lost that bad in a Senate race. And then I was broke and didn't have anything to do. And a guy named Bob Casey was running for governor of Pennsylvania. And he lost three times. And I, of course, I couldn't, I couldn't find nobody to hire me. It was like the ugliest guy and the ugliest girl the night before the prom. There were nobody left. And then we won that. And I won a uh, governor's race in Kentucky and a Senate race in New Jersey and a governor's race in Georgia and a Senate race in Pennsylvania. Bill Clinton hired me, and we won that. Then I've I've worked in twenty three different countries. Oh, fourteen different heads of state. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. It's been a a, a long, gratifying career, and I'm a college professor. But uh, you know, I, I enjoy. I like politics. I really do. Uh, I just love it. Uh, you know, like you, 
it's it's just for show business for ugly people you know but uh, with, with all that 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 wealth of insight and that groundwork and all the stuff that you've done in your journey i feel like whenever you're negotiating or whenever you're coming to the table uh, with something you have to talk to a particular party or a particular side that you probably don't necessarily agree with because don't you agree like it's numerous times that you had to get deals done with people that didn't see things the same way that you seen from your lenses but you had to negotiate and talk with them correct yeah well certainly that's that some of it because you, when you're a democrat you have to you have to understand something you and i are in a coalition all right so when you're in a coalition and we got and now we have huge swaths of college educated suburban women in our coalition we have uh, south asians in our coalition and one of the things that we 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 failed to do in in 2016 for some reason the party got his idea that we didn't need rural white people in our coalition and they left our throats what i'd say to people is we don't have to get these people back. We just need to get 10% more. We just got to beat, get beat less bad in Western Pennsylvania, Northern Wisconsin, and Central Michigan, or Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And that's the way we're going to win races. And you want to, politics, it, it, now some people, you know, politics is about ideology, or it's about a, having a cult figure. That, that's fine if you want to do that. That's just not my approach to it. My approach is, like, how can we extract the most votes consistent with the principles and, and the, the values of the candidate and, 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 and the party at the time? And I, I, I'm a big believer that you, you add, you don't subtract. And Bill Clinton, but nine days before the 92 election, unbeknownst to anybody, he just went to Mississippi. And said, man, what the fuck you doing in Mississippi? They didn't even tell you campaign manager. He said, well, Mike Espy and William Winter said if I came, they thought I could carry Mississippi. And I said, well, you're not going to carry Mississippi, God damn it. But, you know, he didn't think. I, I guess it's like, you know, when you're an athlete, you, you can't think the other guy could beat you. Because if you do, if you think that, you, you're definitely going to get beat. you got to go in there thinking you can win. And that's, that, that's the attitude. And people would get mad at me. When I go on television and say Biden is going to beat this guy, I said, "Well, well, James, James, don't say that. People, no, people want to beat him. We we go in thinking he's going to beat us. If we go in terrified, we're going to get beat. Yeah. You got to think you gotta, you're going to win. You got to have that chip on your shoulder, right? Yes, it's a chip on your shoulder, but you got to have fire in your belly. You know, like, God damn it, get, I, I can get that motor. <laughs> and I, 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 I just. It, it's a it's a it's part of democratic campaign coach. Oh, oh my God, we're gonna lose, James. We're gonna lose. Oh, 2016, you know, and like, oh, fuck 2016. We're in 2020. They both start with a two. That's the only thing they have in common. Let's go, hook them up. Let's roll. And we're gonna roll. We're gonna roll, man. And, and speaking of speaking of rolling, like, it's a lot of backlash in in, in the black community right now you know, particularly aimed at Ice Cube for coming up with an agenda that he felt dear to his heart with the platinum uh, plan for black America uh, to get, you know, economic inclusion. Uh, some of the things that really 
uh, are some resources that we need in our communities directly uh, hitting and impacting our communities. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? You know, he went and possibly, I don't know if he met with Trump or talked to him, you know, via phone, Zoom, whatever. But uh, he's getting a lot of backlash right now just for having the meeting and having that dialogue. You have to talk to the administration if you want to drive change, correct? Well, first of all, it's fine. He can talk to him. If you want to drive train change, you win the goddamn election, all right? Because you're not going to drive change with Trump, because he's going to he's going to use race at, at every moment. If he thinks that that there's some temporary advantage for him with black people, he might exercise it. Then he'll go talk. Then he'll go say we'll find people at Charlottesville, right? So, yeah. and I don't have a a particular. I mean, I'm so culturally different than Ice Cube. Uh, you know, probably not even the same planet. But and I know that, uh, who was the other uh, uh, Kanye West was kind of did, did that something like that. Yeah. But by and large, the the, the the black community in the United States is shoulder to shoulder against this guy, as they well should be. I did yesterday. I did a, a Zoom event for my friend Senator Cory Booker. He has the best idea I've heard, and I, and that's these baby bonds where. Depending on the circumstances which you're born, obviously the more impoverished your circumstances are, the greater amount. But the government cr- opens a bank account for you, and when you're 18, you have like six sixty thousand dollars in the bank. Because when these kids cut, get get out and they have nothing to start with, then they have nothing to lose. And you, you got to give people, you know, something in life where they have. And, and it, by the way, this alone would do like close the, the, the racial wealth gap significantly I, right out of the gate. It, you know, it's not a, it, it, it's a, it's, it's a form of reparations without being reparations because obviously it, it applies across the board. If you're in Appalachia and you're a white kid, you get the same thing. But I think it's the best idea I've heard in a long, long, long time. I've really, really, and there are other things we can do. If you look at Elizabeth Warren's daycare provision, we have federal mandated daycare. I think that would do for particularly black women who and for, for children. And it'd be like first class daycare. It'd be nutrition. It'd be education. It'd be vaccinations. All right. And then that mother could go to work and not have to worry about taking care of that child. When Trump says, Let's give a payroll tax deduction to everybody. Well, if you're a mother and you got two kids at home that you're taking care of in a pandemic, you can't work. That's real. You can't work. There's an exciting new podcast out from Dimwit, Resistance, inspired by the summer's protests. These are new stories from the front lines of the movement from Black Lives, told by a generation fighting for change, hosted by Saheed Tajan Thomas Jr. Resistance is out on Spotify. Take a sneak peek and listen here. One, two, three, boom. On May 29th at 10 a.m. I got a text message about a protest from a friend. Grabbed my bag, had my goggles. I knew what to do. I like put on some pants because I was wearing my pajamas. Covered my entire face. Combat boots. Took our bikes, got on the train, and we just hit the streets. I was like, let's go, let's go, let's go. When people all around the world first started going outside and protesting this summer, 
I'm kind of ashamed to say I was on my couch playing video games. I convinced myself that I was staying home because I didn't want to catch coronavirus, but honestly, I was afraid of being let down again. We've been here before. I know I have. I've marched, I've yelled, and yet we keep ending up right back here again. So how come when protests started this summer, people kept saying over and over again, this time is different? What were they talking about? What were they seeing? So I went out. From Gimlet, I'm Saeed Tijan Thomas Jr. And this is Resistance, a show about people refusing to accept things as they are. People putting their lives on the line. I got sped on, kicked, called the N-word. They started pulling out their batons. They started charging at people. And the next thing I realized, I had like five police officers beating me up. People becoming leaders. Everybody! They are trying to strike fear in our hearts. And people becoming targets. These motherfuckers knock on my door at 7 a.m.? My first instinct was to run. And some people, like me, who've been feeling hopeless for a long time now, are suddenly finding reasons to smile again. Let me see that black joy, baby. And low-key, they're turning the movement into the move. It's like the Summer Jam or Coachella of protests. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, it's a vibe. I follow this movement for months now, and honestly, I still have more questions than answers. Like, how can we make sure this time really is different? What can we learn from the people who've been here before? And how do you keep on resisting when everyone else stops showing up? Look at everybody going back to normal, man. What the fuck for? This ain't normal. Resistance premieres October 14th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Black Lives, baby. Your observation, uh, it comes from a, a, a real place, you know, uh, you know, born in Fort Benning, uh, Georgia. And, you know, you got a military background. Uh, you've been through uh, different layers of, you know, just things, you know, in your life. So your your perspective is just, just different. Do you think it's because you came from, you know, uh, you know, grassroots, you came from, you know, military background where you just observe things a little differently? Well, first, I was born for Benning because my daddy was in the Army at the time, but I, my granddad came, picked my mother and I up after I was like four days old and took me back to Louisiana. I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, I think I grew up in a place, Coronet uh, was maybe 85% black. And we had something called the the, the Sillifer-Hansen's disease, which you would think of as leprosy. Yeah. And that was probably, that was a large part of the community. And I grew up in the 50s, and, you know, segregation was just the kind of way of life. I mean, I was a little boy. I really didn't think about it that much. You know, I just didn't have much of a social conscience. And then I got into my teens, and I uh, honestly, I read, maybe I was, 1960, probably 15, 16 years old, and I read the Harper Lee book, To Kill a Mockingbird, and I just said, you know what? This is not right. This is not fair. This is just not a fair system. And I just became a Democrat. You know, and I had the young Democrats at LSU. When I started LSU, it was segregated. 
I, I did in, in my undergraduate career. I don't think I went to school with, with a black person, but that's the reason I became a Democrat. And I always tell people the reason that most people of my generation become a Democrat is because we don't hate anybody. What, what the hell? And I write, you know, to this day, I don't, I just don't dislike people. Then that's a, it's a terrible way to go through life. And I, I think Biden has a real opportunity to, I think this is a country that wants to come together. I, I really do. I think we, we, we've lost faith in each other. We think that, you know, we've come to believe that we're just irredeemably divided. We're irredeemably racist. You know, this is just going to be the way it is. And I think on election night, we're going to make a statement. We're going to make a statement that this is not who we are, this is not where we want to be. I really, I really believe that. I really mean that. Do you think uh, Biden nailed it last night when you know he was going back and forth in the midst of debate? He said, "You know, just look at the character of both candidates." I, I felt like that was really a, a moment because when you think about all the conversations, it's all things and angles and you know positions that I've heard before. You know, do, throughout the campaigns, but when you just narrow it down something that simple when you just look at the characters of both candidates it's it's not that hard of a decision after that it shouldn't i i would have and by the way i think he's running a good campaign and you know you know in, in sports everybody come back and say oh we were better than you were you're not the nba is not tough anymore it's a goddamn but you know he didn't call the shit i mean i remember when i you know i had to drive you know michael jordan or whatever all right they're a good campaign. I, I, if I was in that, I would have said, this is what I believe is the character of America. I believe that the character of America fundamentally is a country that wants to be fair. I think the character of America fundamentally is a country that would prefer to be together than to be divided. I think the character of America is to recognize that some people in America start out with more disadvantages than others, and that's not acceptable. If you believe that's the character of America, then I ask you to look at me and my opponent. Who do you think most reflects who we are? I, I, I would have done it a little bit differently. I, I think what they got, I think, I think they got a strong B plus on that, but I think there was a chance for an A. I really do. It, it, it's, I always like to tell people, this is what you're thinking, and everybody wants to think that and says, now. Here I am. So when you win an election, you say, I'll tell you what America said tonight. Well, truth of the matter, it's different people might vote for you different reasons, but if you give a defining, optimistic, upbeat evaluation of what happened, I think you're going to do much better. Now, I haven't been around long enough, but I've never seen a presidential election happening where we're in the midst of a climate quite like we are now. You know, over 50 states, multiple countries just, you know, protesting, you know, in an uproar. Like you said, as collectives, we want to come together, but we also need that leadership, not divide the division. So have you ever seen anything like any any somewhat like comparable to what we're witnessing right now and experiencing? No, but I don't think anybody else has. Wow. I, I, I don't think I, I honestly think can. Say, well, you know, maybe 
before the Civil War, I guess. Uh, but you'd have to you'd have to go back that far to see anything like this. The, the horror of, of these four years uh, is just amazing. I, you know, I do. Uh, Tony Kornhauser has a, a podcast, I guess. Is in I, I, I'm the tout. I pick against the point spread. And about three weeks ago, I said, Tony, I just can't do it till after the election. I just, I don't, I don't have, I, I don't have the, I, I don't have the concentration. I said, I'll really try. I call a couple of sports writers. I'll look at a couple of tout sites. You know, I'll see who was on the road last week, and hey, I don't know how good I was. Probably just as good as somebody else. But I said, I, I, I don't, I, I'm just not the kind of guy going to get up and pull three teams out of my ass and give them to you. So we'll, we'll come back after the election. And I, I couldn't, you know, I've watched, uh, uh, how, the, how how does the NBA let Anthony Davis and LeBron James on the same team? <laughs> All right. I mean, that's ridiculous. All right. That's just goddamn ridiculous. I mean, when Com- Commissioner Stern, like, wouldn't remember Chris Paul who tried to leave the New Orleans? He vetoed it. Yeah. Well, uh, well but they got to have, you know, basketball. You got two players like that, shit. There's gonna be. It's hard to beat anybody when you got them. But but anyway, I I, I couldn't. I, I can't even get into LSU football that much this year. We're not very good. We came off the national championship, and I, I'm so distracted by the election. I, I, the Washington Nationals. I'm season ticket holder. I've been a season ticket holder there for 2005. All right, we won the World Series. I didn't. I didn't give a shit. That I was so involved in the election. I didn't care. And I'll, I'll get my life back, thank you, but I'll get it back after after we've extracted this giant wisdom tooth from the <laughs> mouth of the United States. <laughs> now that you brought up sports, I got to ask you because I've seen videos like, you know, with the skill set videos of Pistol Pete. Can you just talk about how great of a competitor as, a, as an athlete he was and what you saw? Right. You know, in him as a player. Well, you, you got to understand that some people that just come along out of nowhere, and you go, "I've never seen anything like that." All right, yeah. Elvis Presley. You know, I, 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 it was like, but Mike Tyson. Somebody said of Mike Tyson, he hits you so hard, he changed the way you taste. All right, <laughs> basketball back then was particularly in, in the SEC, was a kind of white guy sport, all right? And all of a sudden, this guy comes in shooting a gazillion times a game, you know, making every kind of shot that you could imagine, had that kind of floppy hair, those saggy socks, all right? In other words, you just sort of going along and just watching some people play, and, you know, it's uh, and you just have this charismatic, and then the daddy, you know, the whole thing. Basketball had not seen anything like that. You know, uh, I, I I did the, at the NBA All-Star game, uh, Bill Russell and Bob Pettit were there. And B- Bill Russell's the most frightening man I, I, I've ever been around in the sense that you just, just you, you, you know you're not going to fuck with him. But that's just a, a given. He just got that certain presence about himself, don't he? Supposedly, what time, uh, if you ask Charles, 
But Charles was complaining about the taxes he was paying. Bill Russell called him and said, look, you son of a bitch, all these taxes you're paying are helping all the people you grew up with. And I want you to shut up about that. And Charles said, yes, sir, Mr. Russell. And then I will mention it again for the rest of his life. <laughs> I think that's a true story. It sounds like it. Yeah. And, uh, but I just watching those two guys and, you know, the intensity of, and I, I played high school basketball, you know, in Louisiana, the 70s, you know, used to say three at home, four on the road, five when you're behind. But uh, <laughs> you got it now. <laughs> uh, you know, the, 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 it, when you're playing football, you know, you don't see the teams as much and it's a little more room. You know, when you, Bill Russell and Bob Pettit, you played against each other probably 75 times. And you you playing you ain't playing two inches apart, you know. So the knowledge you get of people and their character and their athleticism and everything is really remarkable. It was much more remarkable in NBA then, where you had much fewer teams. Yeah. So the competitors really played against each other, really knew each other, you know. And that yeah. was just a conversation I wasn't gonna get close to. But I said, yeah, I've I've been around him two or three times, and it, it, you got to. You gotta hold. You gotta watch yourself because your first instinct is to say, "Mr. Russell." <laughs> he, he's well, quite a guy. Yeah, he is. He's special, and I think that when we talk about the all-time goats, the greatest of all time, you know, clearly we always bring up Michael Jordan. Uh, Kareem get left out far too often. You I know, agree we, with you, a hundred percent. I don't know why people don't talk about just the numbers. We talk about high school, college. NBA, the dominance, basketball, the body of work. I think that him and LeBron probably had the best body of work from a, a basketball standpoint. Yeah, he had to power was the name of the high school he went to. I think it was like a Catholic school in New York City. I yep. saw him play in college at UCLA because I was in the Marine Corps at that time. Oh, wow. Uh, and, you know, that – and that guy – you know, he played in Milwaukee. All right? If he would have played in Chicago – you would have known a lot more about him. Or if he would have played in Los Angeles, if he would have played in, in, in New York. But, in, and he's a very, I, I just wrote a book, I just kind of read a, a, a book they wrote. I mean, he's a very literate, you know, thoughtful guy. And he's a, you know, he's not a, a, a hell of a fella kind of guy. He didn't go around like slapping backs and that kind of stuff. You know, he's he's kind of reserved. Uh, but you're right. As a basketball player, but the body of work in college was just off the chart. But, but people forget how good he was at the NBA. I mean, he was good. He was. I mean, he was really better than good. So let me let me ask you this. Now we're speaking of the association, the NBA, and you like you said, you're a huge fan. You used to come to the Wizard games and I'm sit. Taking, what do you think about Stan Van Gundy? I love guy. it. He's a former coach of mine and a colleague at work at TNT, so we hate to be losing him. But at the same time, I think he's going to be great for that young nucleus with Zion and all well, those Tell guys. him I can't wait to meet him because I go to, I go to, I'm a season ticket holder. I spend more goddamn money on sports tickets. And, <laughs> it's have you talk about income inequality. Shit. <laughs> but I mean, let me tell you a story about kind of subtle racism. So, I, you know, I, I like it, like a lot of times you can't go to every game, and so I'll get my tickets. A friend of mine, so I get a, a, a friend of mine, Ellis, is a 
a veteran of Iraq war. So brother, he, he, he's an African-American guy. It, you know, they came up and asked him, how did you get in? A, I have like the first row in the, you know, in the bowl. I'm not on the floor, but they're like terrific seats. And they'll come up and ask him, how did you get these tickets? Now, they would never ask that of a, of a white guy. He said, well, I'm a friend of James Carville's, you know. And the guys kind of looked and said, okay. I mean, that's just the kind of indignity day to day that, that, and, you know, he told me about it. I said, you know, Ellis, I'm sorry. I'm not surprised that something like that happened. I hope you enjoyed the game. But it just made me think that, and I don't know how many times you would, you know, how many times people have to go through something like that in a day. And and it's just a little indignity. It's not like getting stopped, beat up, or shot at, you know. But it's like that would not have happened if it would have been a white person. It really wouldn't. Man, that's a hell of an observation right there. I'm glad you brought that up. Well, you see, one of the things I, I did, I, I want you to, there's a site called Bayou Brief. All right? It's Louisiana. It's really good. And it's, it, it's race, water, and oil, James Carville and Frederick Bell. And after Minneapolis, Frederick was a student of mine. He actually came from the same hometown I did. He's a, he's a terrific young man. And I said, let's sit down and have the conversation. All right? And it's all posted there. You can see it. And I said, you know, the, the biggest thing about being white is maybe 15 minutes a day you think about being white. Mostly you just go through life and you do as you want to. If you're black, almost every moment you're aware of that. If you walk down the street, you're aware of that. If you go into a restaurant, you're aware. But you don't have the luxury of, you know, if you, you know, very rarely, if you're and your friends, if you're at LSU and you go to a bar, you're aware. You, 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 and that's a terrible thing to happen. I, would have, I wish we had a country where generations from now, people don't have to be aware of that kind of stuff. That they could just go through their lives, leading their lives, you know, having their friends. And we're a long way from that. But that, that's, I, I, really, I really believe that. You just, you, you're just so aware of it. You, you shouldn't be. So if you're jealous and you go to the game, you, you're aware. You, you're sitting in a, you know, just this observation. But anyway, go ahead. No, that's, sorry. Real. No, that's, that's real. And I mean, every fucking moment, I'm aware that I'm black in america and i've been like that for quite some time even when i became you know first generational riches i still had to go through certain things and i'm just like damn you know it's still there it still exists uh invisible racism some blatant racism that i that i experienced it's just like it, it doesn't change so my next thing is are are you hopeful with some of the things that you're seeing like particularly from like athletes and people that have these massive large platforms that are starting to get engaged into social change and politics and all those things and highlight a lot of things that's happening in, in our society? I, I, I am. Uh, and, I, I, and I think it's it, it's very organic. I, I, you know, you, you're a part of that culture and that community and I'm not. I observe it. And you know what I hope it does. I hope it stays, and I hope it like continues to redefine, redefine itself, and talk about how 
you know how we how we have different messages and how we bring people into what we're trying to do and you know not and how do we get i tell my students look 70 percent of the people that are going to vote in this election are going to be white so you can't win i mean you, you you can win certain seats you can win new orleans with just getting the black vote but you can't win louisiana all right, you got so you, you want to be sure that you're always talking about how you expand your program and also talk to people about how a more just nation is a better nation and a more prosperous nation. All right, in, in other words, you got to give people some idea of hope at the end of the day. Now, you know, and, and remember this, and, uh, and I would tell this to all the friends that are part of this. Every car, every movement begins as a cause, becomes a business, and ends up a racket. All right. So, you know, people start something and they got this and they say, well, maybe, maybe we can sell Black Lives Matter shirts and we can make money and we can reinvest that. And then somebody comes along and says, well, you know what? I got a manufacturer that's not very good, but we can buy more of that. We can do it. It happens to everybody. Damn. Every religion, everything starts out. You know, starts out, we love Jesus Christ. Then they get the collection plate. Then, you know, you, you end up with the Vatican Bank or something like that. They're just over there skimming all the money they can get. Hey, repeat that, repeat that phrase again. Every every, every movement yeah. begins as a cause, becomes a business, and morphs into a racket. Wow. And Eric Hopper, who is this longshoreman philosopher or something. He said that, and it doesn't matter how noble the cause is. It, 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 it you have to, you have to say, look, we don't want to become a racket. All right, and what you also want is to. So John Lewis taught me this. Uh, when remember Trent Lott said to Storm Thurmond, if we if he'd have been there, we'd have done some. The country would have been better. And then he kind of apologized. John Lewis says that the duty to forgive is paramount. The duty to forgive for racism is more paramount. You have to. Because if you did not do that, we would all live with our worst moment. There would be no redemption. So if you take like Ralph Northam, okay, so he was in blackface when he was at VMI. There's nothing in Ralph Northam's public life that indicates that that was who he was. And if he says that was a mistake, then you got to say, okay, that's it. That's behind me. Because if you don't, you're always going to be stuck at your worst moment. Mm. You're always going to be stuck there. So if you tell somebody, that was your worst moment, I, I I I don't think there's any such thing, but just suppose that somebody had a recording of me in 1964 using the N-word. I, I, there's none that exists. I don't think I did, but we're just going to go in hypothetical. Every so I'll never I'll never talk to that guy again for the rest of my life. But then there's no hope, and you you want to tell people, you know that that come into your crusade that 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 share the values that you have. That this is an open, this is an open operation. This we 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 like sinners in this church. 
if you try to build a, a, a church for just saints, you're not going to go very far because there's too goddamn few saints in this world. Well, you, you want to you, you want to tell people to have hope. And I tell you what makes me feel good is younger people. That they're much. If, if I say to my children that somebody is black or they're gay, and they said, "Daddy, why do you say that?" I said, "Well, I mean, I was just making an observation. Okay, I just just said we don't even need to mention that." Yeah. And, and that that is true of a lot of young white kids right now. I mean, you have a and and, and my children are, are you know they're reflective of the other, a lot of the other kids around him. And of course they're around more fluent kids and most of their friends are white, but that's an attitude they have. And and I would tell all of my friends that are activists that are doing that is we want to bring a lot more people in because you got to change the way that the country thinks. And I, and I think you're going to have a clarifying moment during this election. And I hope that all of all of you and your friends talk about how do we leverage this? How do we build this into a platform that brings people in? I think that that's a key point. This is going to be a defining moment. And, you know, in, in, in your cause, or your movement, you have to adapt. You have to adjust. You, you know, it's a different thing. And this is going to be a different world on November 4th than it is today. You know, that could be a new world. What 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 are the chances? You know, uh, that Trump is in some type of legal trouble after the election. All right, he the chances are as close to certain as you can. So this is what the country is going to be faced with. Trump's going to scream and yell, all his people and everything, and he'll have. He'll probably resign, and he's going to say he'll go and say, "If you want me to go to Mar-a-Lago, stay stay away from me. I don't, you know, give me a pardon, Andrew Cuomo. I need a pardon from New York State. Biden, I need a pardon. All right. And if you don't, we're going to be there's going to be blood in the streets. I'm telling you, there's going to be the, the Proud Boys. There's going to be everything. At that point, the temptation just to get rid of him, just go." Fuck, get the fuck out of here. Okay, I don't care where you go. And, this fuck out of here. Out of here. And <laughs> does the country really want to go through trying him, you know, having all this, be outside the courthouse, have people fighting in the street, you know, just let his fat ass go down there and, you know, <laughs> eat himself to death. I, I am of the view that the biggest mistake that President Obama made was not going after these bankers. All right. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, well, let's just put it behind us. Let's, get out, let's, let's try to get out of this mess. And that did a good job and saved the auto industry and stopped the financial collapse. And it, that had a lot to do with Trump. When people said, you know what, these sons of bitches didn't go to goddamn jail. And I, I you know, and, and let, look at, you know, Steve Bannon, you know, he's going to penitentiary. Look, look at Brad Parcell. That guy's, there's a story in the AP that you need to read. This is good. When your grandchildren read about this era, it'll be, they'll know about the racism, the division, the, the, the lack of expertise, 
the name calling, what, what they're going to remember is the staggering corruption. That campaign has stolen a billion dollars. Every grift that you can imagine, they're involved in. And I don't think you can let that kind of crap go. I, 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 you know, it's going to be a hard thing for the country to go through. But I, I, I think when you don't have accountability, it, it, it really undermines people's basic trust. And, and, and I think when not going after these goddamn bankers was a mistake. I really do. In the podcast, Nice White Parents, reporter Hannah Jaffe Walt, you may know her from This American Life, started looking into a school in her neighborhood after her kids became school age in New York City. Hannah examines this public middle school traditionally filled with black and brown students. After a number of white families arrived, she investigated the school's history and finally realized what kept getting in the way of making the school better. White Parents. Nice White Parents is made by Serial Productions, a New York Times company, the same people who made Serial in S-Town. Launch CTA is now through 819. It's available everywhere, wherever you get your pods. Ben CTA, 820 and beyond. All episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. And and you, you speak on going after the bankers and also uh, the possibility of real political pressure uh, at the, the police forces. When you see all the things that's happening across the board, uh, do you think that will happen or do you think it will be a change on how we police these communities or the, the type of inclusion that we have people from the communities policing particular areas? Like, do you see any difference? Right. So let's kind of start an observation I make. And I think you'll agree with this. The most integrated institution in the country might be uh, police chiefs, high-end police in urban areas. All right. And, and some, some of it is, it's more, the police unions, all right? When they got, you got Bob Crow is the head of the Minneapolis police union. When they elect Bob Crow, they're saying something because Bob Crow shows up at every Trump rally, yeah. all right? The police chief is fine, all right? The, the police deputy chief is fine, all right? I, I, you know, I, and there's a way that you can have, you know, it's a small place, but if you look at what they've done in Camden, it's stunning. It's really stunning. It actually, in Los Angeles, has a it is one of the better. Now you always, you always go, you know, what about this incident here and I, but that. But I'm just, people that study this, there are ways that you can have effective, humane policing. But but let me say this, Karan. I, I did a lot of mayor's race and did focus groups. And if you go to New Orleans and do a focus group with 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 blacks, they'll say, you know what? If it's James Carville's house uptown. The goddamn police will be there in three minutes. If it's my house in New Orleans East, the damn police will be there in 30 minutes. I mean, the complaint is generally the response time. All right? So when people say, no, people don't want to get rid of the police department. They just want a, a better police department. And so much of a, what we do to the police is it's a domestic fight. You know, more police would get killed in trying to break up a husband and wife or you know, boyfriend and girlfriend fighting than anything else. We should have social workers do that. So much of this is drugs, as Biden said last night. I want to put, put people in jail for drugs. We need to give them rehabilitation. Yeah. But you, you're not going to 
this is a this is a, a an objective that a people don't want, and if you think about it, you don't want it to get rid of policemen. But but policemen need to view themselves not as warriors but as guardians. All right, and, and it's just got to be a change in attitude. But I'll tell you right now, you know that too. A big big complaint is. You know, if the French Quarter gets all the cops and we get shit, because that's where all the money is. <laughs> I mean, I'm, and you know that's true. I've heard it a thousand times. Hey, even when the protests and stuff was happening out here on Hollywood and Vine, they had the National Guard literally set up camp and build a wall pretty much around Beverly Hills. Yeah. And that was mind-blowing to me because it's like, that's the only thing that has value here. In the podcast, Nice White Parents, reporter Hannah Jaffe Walt, you may know her from This American Life, started looking into a school in her neighborhood after her kids became school age in New York City. Hannah examines this public middle school traditionally filled with black and brown students. After a number of white families arrived, she investigated the school's history and finally realized what kept getting in the way of making the school better. White Parents. Nice White Parents is made by Serial Productions, a New York Times company, the same people who made Serial in S-Town. Launch CTA is now through 819. It's available everywhere, wherever you get your pods. Ben CTA, 820 and beyond. All episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. You know what? And, and a lot of people in Beverly Hills call the governor. <laughs> you know? Because they got power. Yeah. They got power. And, and the, you know, what the last thing, you know, and I, I, I watch Fox. I consider it part of my job. All right. And you, if you don't watch Fox, you cannot be at, at some level. You can take about five minutes of it at the time or 10 minutes of it at a time. It's literally all race all the time. It, it, every time somebody throws a brick through a window, that's 10 minutes on Fox. And with the leadership, people like you, you know, is, you know, and, and the, the whole, you know, King understood that. He understood that. And I, I know that I can't imagine how frustrated people get. And then, of course, you got the people out of, market of this and then you got some people that just ain't no good all right it's just that's just just a fact you can they hate to say it but it's true that's real so, so uh i i just hope i hope all of all of all of y'all you know you have a big platform you've been very effective and very passionate in it but i hope you you keep redefining your mission and i hope your mission grows you know, leads the country, but grows with the country. I think that's a very important thing is you got to stay strategic. And, you know, the country really supports Black Lives Matter. If you look at the polling, I, I, I'm, I'm really kind of surprised. I mean, if you look at, so Crone, this is what the, what the real issue is. You have people that say, this country is irredeemably racist. There's nothing you can do about it. It was born in racism. It lives in racism, and it will continue to have that, and it's incapable of changing. I understand that people, how people feel that way. However, 
okay, let's take Jamie Harrison. Mm-hmm. If you would have told me Obama being a case, but people say, well, that was a one-off. It was because of Bush. Look, look at what Jamie is doing in South Carolina, right? And that guy's raised, I think he's raised so, I tell, I go on TV and say, don't send him no more money. <laughs> you got so much money, you don't know what to do with it. Look, I tell you, the guy, you watch my, my guy, tough race. You, you ever heard of Adrian Perkins? I've seen that name. Okay, let me tell you about it. Adrian grew up in the poorest neighborhood in Shreveport you can imagine. He was the first black brigade commander at West Point. He oh, served wow. three tours, three combat tours. He won the bronze medal. He then went to Harvard Law School, where he was the president of his class at Harvard Law School. He came back at 36, ran for mayor Shreveport, and beat an incumbent two to one. All right? We got to build up the careers of the Adrian Perkins of the world. And Adrian Perkins is going to run for state office again. And, you know, again, it's in Louisiana, 70% of the people who vote are going to be white. We got to expand Adrian's appeal. We got to, you know, I feel it's my duty to support and help guys like this come up. But, you know, you want to have, your, your movement wants to be adaptive and it wants to be hopeful. And once you tell people that they are irredeemably in a place, there's no redemption, you're just inherently bad people, I think you, you lose the fight at that point. That's a great option. Tell people, you know what, you can be a better person. That's what people want to hear. Right. Now, some people, you're right. You're never going to get to them. Yeah. Now, fuck them. You know, <laughs> get, get the ones you can get to. I love, I love, I love that that outlook on things. And in addition to your work uh, in the political space, you've also been an actor appearing in numerous films and TV shows <laughs> for three decades, mostly as yourself. Right. You know? And that's enough of a character. But are are you looking to portray different roles and stepping outside of the box and broaden that? The answer is no, because one time. Put me in a movie where I was playing somebody else other than myself, and that's hard. I could be me, you know. People, this is this is like being an athlete. They actually, people think they can do that. So, uh, I think it was Larry King. Was on there something in uh, who was the guy? Who was the mayor of Sacramento? He's a NBA player. He's a very oh, good guy. huh? Kevin Johnson. Yeah, Kevin Johnson. And he asked somebody, you think you could play? And I said, hey, no, he can't. He's a professional athlete. You can't play against these guys. Are you nuts? I mean, and people think out there, oh, I, 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 you know, because everybody is like drained a three-pointer and, in, in, you know, through a, a wire net, all right? So you, you sit there and say, one time I was up at spring training, Atlanta Braves, this was way back in the early 90s when Zell Mills, the governor of Georgia. And so John Smokes was there. It's about, you know, and I was the governor's friend. So they said, you want to step in there? So I said, all right. So I look at John Smokes and said, you're not going to hit me, are you? He said, no, I'm not going to hit you. All right. This was a spring try. You I couldn't even see the ball. <laughs> all right. And people think that they can go out and, and do that. And you cannot do that. You promise me. That's all these people have done all of their lives. All right. And they start with. 
it, but it's 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 good. The good thing about basketball is it makes you think you can do it. You know. Yeah. But hey, once yeah. you, you and acting is the same in in the same way. There's a, it's a very much what, what these people have, you know, is real skill. And they've been, they've been doing it all of their lives. And so, yeah, so if they get on and say, James, be an old school, I can do that. <laughs> that's easy. But if that's easy, but if you put no, I can't hit a major league fastball, but I just can't do it. Okay. I can't make a shot, you know, with a professional athlete guarding me. They ain't do that. They can't do shit. And you just got to realize what the skill set is. And I got people that come in off the street and they want to run campaigns. You're like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> hey, let me ask you this. You know, when I, I know that you've been super engaged, you love politics, you're in it. And uh, I'm glad you are because I'm learning so much from you just having this conversation. But what do you see? you know, with your students who catch the bug of interest and activism and trying to move the needle on change? And what are some of your messages too? That's a good question. Well, I've been, in, I started teaching in like 2003 at Northern Virginia Community College. And I teach these community college kids. Then in 2008, I, I started at Tulane, which is a high-end private university. And now I've been, last three, four years, I've been at LSU. The biggest change you've seen is there's so many more women in the classroom than you can imagine. I mean, in my class right now at LSU is probably out of the 30 students I have, I, I bet you at least 20 are women. And of course I get more because I'm at LSU and you know, the African-American population in Louisiana is probably 33%. And 12% of my student body is black, but that's, we really notice the difference between LSU and Tulane. I mean, it, it's a discernible difference. And you say, well, 12% to 33% is not very good, but it's better than most places. And, and they're, very, they're very good at this. And I, I work with the, the younger black males because some of these children, this is their first experience outside of first generation to ever go to college. A lot of them come from rural places. They all went to high schools that were predominantly black and then you come and it's a it's a big place to get adjusted to so they and they i think these these children need need a helping hand and you know one of the things that your organization can talk about is to try to get more people into college and to get more and to have the support because they don't you know it's a big if you come from kentwood louisiana you know, that that's and you go to Baton Rouge, that that's a big change in your life. You know, it's a terrifying change. And these younger people really need and, and we gotta recruit and mentor and bring people along. So that that's a, a a really necessary thing that we need to do. And I you know I just identify more with because I'm a male, I identify more with the problems that Black young black males have it doesn't. It, it, it actually in this class, I, my, my my black student of females, uh, it, it just varies. But but I I do find, uh, you know, the, the young people are really open to change. And even in Louisiana, which is a 
you know, we'd be usually not the first people to come to the party at all. But, <laughs> but you know, we're, we're we're doing a little better. I think we're doing a little better. You know, I hope we I hope we stay in that direction. It's it's, it's very dicey. We we got a good governor. Yeah. Uh, and we got to keep these people in the state because if you lose all the talented, all the talented young, and, and a lot of them go to Atlanta. I can't say that I blame them. We'll go to Houston and Nashville. And if we lose our talented people, we're going. It's not. It's not a good idea. It's not good for anybody. We got to try to. We got to inspire and in the, the younger, more talented people to stay in state. That's just a part of what we got to do. Because if we don't. It's gonna be. It's not gonna be good. It's not gonna end well for anybody. Man, you echo the same words that Mitch Landrew and Mark Moriel and individuals like that that come from you know that Louisiana, New Orleans area. Right. And the messaging is absolutely the same. It's crazy. Well, because we, you know, is Mitch wasn't when I moved there. I said, shit, this play, I thought it was kind of a noble thing to do. I was going to move to New Orleans and, you know, go to Galatoire's and the fucking city was falling apart. And Mitch yeah. Landry had said he wasn't going to run. I went to him I said, man, you can't do this. I'm going to move my family down here. <laughs> he got to run. I begged him. I got him to, yeah, begged him to run. He ran. And he was a damn good mayor. And, and yeah. one of the points I made, you know, if he wouldn't have taken those Confederate monuments down, can you imagine what would have happened in New Orleans after the George Floyd thing, and you'd have had Robert E. Lee up there? Somebody kill him. Somebody that died. Did a, you know, they dynamited that thing. Yeah. And I'm, don't why not blame him? But the fact that we did that, and and I mean, it went through. It was hell. It took them three years to do that. Lawsuit. People screaming and shit like that. And, and that's where, when, when a politician makes a decision, it it, it really means something. And it really meant something that he that Mitch Landrew did that. And Mark, you know, he his daddy was the first Dutch was the first black graduate of LSU Law School and was the first black mayor of New Orleans. Wow! And he Dutch was a tough guy, man. Uh, but but if you live in a place like New Orleans, you, you know, if if you don't get along, your life is miserable. I mean, it just is because we're such a uh, probably thirty percent of the city is white. And I always tell people if if they have a race war, we're not gonna, we're not going to do well in the initial battle. I'm not for that. You might by, by the time you get somewhere else, but I'm not going to fare well in this. I think we're going to try to figure a way to, to cut this thing off at the pass. But yeah, I think Latoya, I think we got a good. I think Latoya is doing a good job now. But but you can't run a city like that without being inclusive. Because um, if you do, it, it's... When Nagin made the Chocolate City remark, that, that the people tell you that set the city back two years. Wow. I, you know, when I, I... It's a typical question that I always ask people that come and, you know, bless us with their appearance on this show. And this will be my last one for you. Uh, when you think about your longevity in this space, you know, and all the time and sweat equity you've given to drive change and, you know, bring awareness to so many things. Ultimately, what your legacy will be, what do you want to be remembered for most? So this is something I wrote 
in a, a publication called The Bulwark. It's how these never Trumpers, it was the former Republicans that, you know, hate Trump. And I'll read, I want to read from what I wrote because this comes from my heart. All right. We find ourselves again at a turning point. Donald Trump's authoritarian presence behind the resolute desk is among the gravest threats that America has ever faced from within. And Americans have risen to meet this threat. The resistance has created its own seismic shift. Look at the rallying cries for racial justice coming from Americans of all colors who have joined arms to speak out. Look at the willingness of voters to wait for hours in lines in Georgia to exercise their democratic right to fight the franchise. Look at the coalition that has been formed from Republicans and Democrats to activists who are determined to stand up to this threat. We are constantly told that America is too divided, too hopelessly stricken by tribalism to come together anymore. Well, I'm here to proclaim that this received wisdom is just plain wrong. If you were to run a cable through the heart of America right now, you would see an image of an exceedingly diverse coalition of people who challenged that assumption to its core. You would see a suburban woman from a once Republican stronghold in Maricopa County, Arizona, stand alongside a retired grandfather in Florida, a college student in the Bronx, a Latina mom in Raleigh, a black computer program in Houston. And yes, standing alongside even former Trump voter in Wisconsin, who's now changed his mind. This coalition is exactly why an incumbent president is on the precipice of a catastrophic defeat. But this is more than a campaign. This is a crusade for America. Long after Trump is gone, this unity forged in his opposition should be remembered. My participation in Cyprus is operated by many of my former Republican rivals as evidence of this unity in and of itself. This article posted right here is evidence that this is a moment that carries extraordinary consequence, much more profound than any victory or defeat for a candidate. Like a majority of the people who read this site, I am white and I'm white and affluent. And you know what else? I love my country. Collectively, what I know to be true among many like us is that we understand we have existed on an advantage and privileged perch, perch in our slice of America. If you're like me and you've been haunted by the fact that because of this privilege, many of us have never, in the late John Lewis's words, made enough good trouble or fought hard enough in a good fight. Now, maybe that's because, quite frankly, many of us have never had our, really had our backs against the wall. What this moment has done for us, all of those who sat on the sidelines of history, it was never presented, presented with something that gave us as much gravitas. It has given us one fleeting moment, the moment we're living in right now, a sense of common purpose, common purpose of which we'll be able to recall forever, that when our country and our republic were on the brink of collapse, when our fellow Americans needed us, we took a blow torch to our differences, our former conflicts, our old rivalries, we fought together. In less than two weeks, I'll be 76 years old. I was a boy raised on some of the poorest banks of the Mississippi River. I've now had the overwhelming honor to help elect senators, governors, my dear friend Bill Clinton as president of the United States. I've seen my face flash across the silver screen too many times. I've flown around the world twice and practiced in the profession I love. All of this wildly unimaginable to a little boy skipping rocks in Louisiana 70 years ago. As I sit here, wonderstruck and retrograde, I can say certainly that in all my years joining this crusade to take America back from the brink of destruction is the greatest thing I've ever been part of in my life. That's powerful. That's what I think. That's powerful. When you can get that Damn. from the bulwark. That was powerful, bro. You know what, Karan? It's like you know, when you put all your heart into something and, you know, you, 
you got to look back on this. And I just think that I think we're going to have our finest hour. I, I just hope so, because our country, we've lost faith in each other. You know, I, I mean, it, it, we got to we got to have a we got to have a restoration of faith here. And, and we got to we got to trust each other. We got to have we got to know that people got our backs. And, uh, you know, I just, I just feel that way. I just I, I can't sleep at night. I'm, I just. I, I just I just hate this guy so much. I I, I sh- he shouldn't do that, but I I can't help myself. I, I just think he's just you know done everything he can to destroy something that I love, and I just I just, I just want to get this motherfucker out of there as fast as I can. <laughs> I love it, man. Listen, I just want to say it's been truly an honor uh, sharing this platform with you. I'm I'm. I'm blown away by the wealth of insight and knowledge that you dropped on this show. And I'm better from this discussion. And I know our listeners and viewers will be as well. So I appreciate you so much for making time today. Well, thank you. Just remember, keep redefining. Don't let you miss. Don't, don't become a business or a racket, you know, keep it, keep it as a cause. And, uh, you know, you got to keep the ball moving and we're going to I think we're going to be living in a different world after November 3rd. And so you have to adapt your messaging and your, your methods to a changing and evolving world. And hopefully, for the most part, as Martin Luther King said, the arc of history bends toward justice. That's real. All right. 100%. So, a big honor to be on your show. I saw you play. I remember you played, you played for Jim Calhoun at, at UConn. He, he was a good Democrat, wasn't he? <laughs> he had a he had a mouth on him. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, uh, I, I I saw you playing college. I saw you playing the pros, and you know, yeah, but better than being a, a great basketball player, you're you're a remarkable human being, and uh, and I know you're going to continue to be that way. And I really expect you know great great things uh, out of you for a long time to come. Make you proud, brother. Thank you. All right, man. Be good. Take care.